0: You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Longhorn Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Aaron Limmer. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. How you doing? (laughs) Upbeat. Peppy. Yeah. Uh, This week's episode, I'm not going to ask who Max talked to. Because I was there. We went to Pittsburgh. Uh, we have been uh, sponsored uh, for a while by their writing program at University of Pittsburgh, and we went down there for our second annual live podcast there. Uh, Max, who did you talk to? You know. You just said you weren't going to ask me. Will S. Hilton. <laughs> yeah, Doctor Will Hilton. He writes uh, for the New York Times Magazine, Roper GQ, and Esquire for a long time. Uh, he's a good guy. Evan, what did you do while we were gone? I don't even remember when did this you, happened. Did you? <laughs> did you tape some episodes of your solo show? I didn't even notice you were gone. Rat That's riffs. The truth. <laughs> Um We got a great sponsor this week: The Foghorn, a new short fiction magazine for the iPhone, iPad, and iPod Touch. They put up four stories a month, twelve issues a year, uh, featuring exciting Hollywood writers and new voices. You can check them out at thefoghornmagazine.com. dot com. We got a second sponsor, you guys. It's a Tiny Letter. From the good people at uh, MailChimp, it is an easy, simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. There are all kinds of tiny letters out there that you should subscribe to. Subscribe to all of them. Here's Max with Will S. Hilton. Hey, Will Hilton. Hey. How you doing, man? I'm all right. It's, uh, it's good to be with you in Pittsburgh.
1: Yeah, love it here.
0: Really, uh, it's really nice to be in Pittsburgh with is our second live podcast and I loved the, the first one with Joel yeah, yeah that one was uh, that one was really fun that guy's a, that guy's an emotionally open guy yeah it was like a, I, I left and I knew myself better after that conversation <laughs> um, well, we've got a lot to talk about Will. I'm really excited uh, uh, to be talking to you um, you've been writing for magazines for a long time, and there are a lot of stories that are, are in my like all time favorites and I want to talk about those oh, um, but we should probably start with your book. You wrote a book.
1: Yeah, I've been. Uh, I wrote the book came out almost exactly two months ago, and I've sort of spent the last couple of months hawking my wares <laughs> everywhere. One of the things that was so exciting to me about doing this is getting a chance to talk about long form, which is really the medium that I've venerated all my life. Um, and the book is this sort of outlier in my in my work to date. I did I did really fall in love with the form of of writing a nonfiction book, which I did not expect to do. I saw it as as something I had to write, because that was a story I wanted to tell, and it was the only way to tell it.
0: Yeah, that was part of what I was, I mean, you've done all of these fantastic stories, many of which feel like they could have been books, and I guess I'm, I'm interested in why this was the one that you decided to sort of pour years of your life into, but maybe before we get into that question, you should just give a sort of brief synopsis of, of, the, of
1: the book. So the, the book is called Vanished, and it's it's the, the, the subhead, which should be stricken from the record as quickly as possible, is the search for the missing men of World War II, and the book, is about no such thing. Um, uh, the, the book is actually about the search for a specific World War II airplane with uh, 11 uh, airmen on board, um, which, which disappeared from the sky in the middle of a bombing run over a tiny little patch of islands in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, um, which had been occupied by the Japanese and which the Americans needed or thought they needed in order to, uh, to, to defeat Japan in the war. And, um, and so during this bomb run, the plane was shot out of the sky. A bunch of parachutes were seen um, popping off the plane um, as it's corkscrewed out of, uh, of flight. Um, but it was never clear exactly where the fuselage or the plane landed, how many men were aboard, how many men survived, and what might have happened to them. And over time, over a period of about 60 years, um, a lot of people became interested in finding out. Sort of the more... The more clear it became that the mission reports from that day were wrong, that the plane wasn't where it was believed to be, um, and, and that uh, and that, the men, that the families of, of some of the men um, believed that they had actually come home and, and, and were hiding, um, the, more, the more intense the search became to find out whether or not that was true.
0: And a big part of the book is, is not just about the mission, but about the families today and uh, the sort of effect... That having a family member go missing has on a family, sort of long term, not not just short term. What was it about this story that that hooked you in a way that you thought, okay, this is something that um, I'm not going to do for a magazine. This is something that I need a couple hundred thousand words for, not ten. What what, what was the What was the sort of tipping thing there?
1: That was it. It was I I, I went originally to do this as a magazine piece, and uh, and as I was finishing up the magazine piece, one of the last people I interviewed was a a football coach out in Texas, who, uh, whose father had been on the plane, and this—he's this big, powerful guy, as you would imagine, a West Texas football coach to be. And He's also powerful, sort of spiritually, if if you will, um, because he's he's that sort of Coach Taylor type of figure in the lives of so many young boys who learn from him about you know integrity and on and off the field, sort of courage, different kinds of courage, um, and and so you know he presents this very put together. And very impressive, f- for formidable figure, um, and yet it only took a couple of seconds of talking with him before he he broke down completely, um, talking about what it has meant for him to grow up, always wondering whether his father uh, lived or died, and if he lived, whether the rumors in his family uh, were true. Um, those rumors being that that his father had used the crash as an opportunity to abandon his mother and him, uh, and and so becoming aware of that. Um, incredible fraught emotional problem that I'd never considered before at the end of the magazine piece it was, it was enormously unsatisfying. Um, and I was able to write some of that into the piece, but not very much. Um, and at that time, it was still not clear uh, whether any of those rumors were true, uh, what what had happened to his father. Um, and, and, and so I found myself just continuing to report after the story was put to bed um, and just kind of still very interested in in keeping in touch with him and in keeping in touch with the search team that was out there uh, in the islands doing um, underwater recovery work to try to see if they could find any of this guy's bones. Um, And then it was only after a few months of this sort of, um, you know, postpartum state where the story was gone, but I was still reporting it, that I realized I was kind of already working on a book. (laughs) Right,
0: right. You're sort of, uh, you're hooked from there. I, I, um, a big part of the book, sort of uh, the sort of theme of the book, is that um, these are people; these families are largely forgotten. It's uh, it's a, it's a uh, an issue that's so far in the margins that people don't really know about it, and even if you do, it's really hard to understand where they're at. And, and so, I guess I wonder: as you went further with the book, you finished the book, you you spent a year writing it. You know, you finally put out. You've been on all these shows talking about it, and all these best of lists and all these things. Have you gotten some closure on the story?
1: I wish I could say I had i, I found myself uh, right before the the book's release, we were going to do a excerpt of the book in the in the New York Times magazine and this is a um this is a real nice thing if you're putting a book out to be able to do an excerpt in a big magazine like that and so we were starting to call like what's going to be what parts of the book are going to be in the excerpt and then I found out from a guy that I knew from reporting on the book, about this crazy recovery operation taking place on a totally different set of islands in the Pacific, and all the the largest cache of American MIAs probably ever recovered. Over 500 Marines buried a couple feet, I mean literally a couple feet below the surface is microscopic postage stamp size island out in the middle of nowhere. and somehow I ended up just feeling like I wanted to write about that and use the space for that, and it may not have been the best way to uh, to spread word about the book. But the next thing I knew, I was on this 90-hour flight out <laughs> to this nowhere <laughs> island. And uh, and as when I was out there, I was just thinking, like, man, I guess I'm not done with this material. You know, for the most part, my my trajectory as a magazine writer for a lot of years has been I just kind of go from one subject to another. There's little periods where I fixate on something, but. Um, but generally speaking my my subject matter changes pretty radically from story to story and in this case I feel like I'm still you know and that story came out a couple weeks after the the book's release and within days of that I was all enmeshed in this other recovery operation that's been taking place out in the China Burma India theater fascinating case at least to me (laughs) Uh, I finally decided I don't think I'm going to write about that I need to write about like a comedian living in a warm climate. <laughs> <laughs> Give yourself a break. Yeah, something a little lighter. So you, but do you think
0: that you don't have much of a choice, that you're going to stay on this topic? I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that because y- you are like a true generalist. I mean, you've written about all kinds.
1: Generalist of... is a nice way of saying dilettante, professional dilettante. <laughs> I have no, um, you know, I have no beat and I have no area of expertise, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I, I'll come back to it for sure. Um, I'm, I'm just—I'm really drawn to the experience that the families have, um, and trying to make people aware of it. What was your sense of their experience of the book? It's been, it's been wild. I mean, it's kind of awkward to say this in a public setting. Um, it's a safe I, space. I hope it does not <laughs> hope it doesn't come off wrong. But the, the, it was the, the coolest thing that's happened to me with this book. None, way beyond any of the other stuff, the lists or whatever, is that the the people in the book. The, sub, the characters, the subjects, whatever you want to call it, they all got together, and, and they, they, they rented out this space, and they all flew into New York, and they threw a book party for me, and it was like just this closed community of people who were in the book, and uh, God, that was great. You oh, know? That's just, amazing. I felt like I had done the thing, that's when I felt like I had done the thing I wanted to do. I'd given them the voice that we, that we wanted them to have, you know, and conveyed it in a way that meant something to them. You're trying to get me all broken up and it's working. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, well, congratulations on the book. I'll, I'll put you out of your misery. We don't have to talk about it anymore. All right. Uh, so, you and I have talked on the phone and I've read your stuff for a long time. And, uh, you know, I was looking back and trying to, you know, re familiarize myself with it before uh, we talked today. And, um, and then, but I never met you before. And the, I met you at the airport today. And you're, like a, you're, you're a young man. Well, thank you. Say it again. <laughs> yeah, you're a young man. I was not expecting uh, such a young man. And, here, and here's why. Uh, you've been writing for magazines for a really long time. And you've been writing, doing journalism for even longer. I found an article in, in my research um, from the Baltimore Sun from 1992 with uh, your byline. And it was about um, the uh, booming troll trend. Okay a lot of uh, people buying trolls in Baltimore in 1992. <laughs> uh, you had a pretty awesome lead. Can I tell you what the lead was? Do you remember it?
1: I d- uh, yes, I do. You I do? do? For many parents, it's a troll down memory lane. That's right. <laughs> uh, I apologize for that. <laughs> <way>. <laughs> well, it's, it's fair. What were you, like 12
0: when you wrote that story? How, like,
1: <laughs> 1992. It, how? I st- I, this is all I've ever done, man. I started... Uh, I started writing for The Sun. I, was, uh, this, I got the job this summer I was 16, and I, I didn't attend my last year of high school. They gave me credit for it.
0: Every uh, time we, we do these live podcasts
1: at universities,
0: the person is like, uh, what you want to do is get a journalism job when you're 16. <laughs> <laughs> it's so helpful, Will. <laughs> um, okay, seriously, wait. You skipped your senior year of high school and I didn't became skip, a journalist? I didn't skip it. I mean, you're like the Doogie Howser of journalism. <laughs>
1: It was, uh, I, I just had other things I enjoyed more, um, so I just didn't go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have any permission for that. It was weird that once in a while I would show up. Um, I was only supposed to have a couple of classes. I was supposed to work at the sun, the Baltimore Sun, in the morning um, in this kind of work-study thing, which I think I was supposed to be like a gopher and, and get coffee and stuff. How did, you, how did you get that? Through, through a program at the school, work-study program at the school, okay. um, and I was already doing the newspaper for the school and everything. Um, And the sun uh, was undergoing some real stressful changes at that time. Um, There was the morning sun and the evening sun, and then uh, the evening sun folded. You were writing for newspapers when they were still doing the evening editions? Exactly, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And now they're not even doing the morning editions. I'm telling you, Will is actually a young man. (laughs) (laughs) And they they folded the evening paper where I was working, and... um, and, and at the same time, they offered this buyout where anybody could get a year's salary if they would just leave, and so everybody left. And they were like, "Fuck, where's that intern?" All we have is that sixteen-year-old. Yeah. Exactly. Put him on the troll beat. Exactly. Next thing I know, I'm like wandering around town writing stories about all sorts of random shit, man. Like one guy who collected underpants and sent them to Russia. And like, were lane, you assigned that story, engineer. or was that uh, I found that one? <laughs> uh, that's my actual beat. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it was... And then I got a job. I, I sort of parlayed that into... Um, there was a weekly paper that I really liked, and I went to them and, and asked them if they wanted... if they needed a youth editor, and they said, well, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I started going there uh, in the afternoons after I would file whatever story I'd written for The Sun, I'd go over to this other, you know, weekly newspaper, and I, I created a page for, for youth news promptly assigned myself a column with my own picture at the top (laughs) uh, opining you know didactically on things about which I knew nothing uh and that ran every week do
0: you remember the name of the column did you did it have a name it
1: was just me me. (laughs) it was my name in huge letters (laughs) and my picture grinning stupidly no I don't think it had a name I don't think there was a name for it um the name of the paper was the Baltimore Times it's still published um and, uh, and so, you know, going to high school suddenly seemed, like, really dull, you know. Um, and I was, a, I was a public school student. Um, I, I'm a product of the Baltimore City Public Schools. And, you know, to their cre- great credit, like, on the rare occasion when I would show up, um, and a lot of my friends are classmates from then now, and, and, uh, and my wife is, was a classmate then, um, you know, I'd, go, I'd show up to see them once in a while. Um, we didn't edit the newspaper from the – I was still the editor of the newspaper. But we did that from the weekly newspaper office um, after hours. So when I showed up at school, it was kind of just to hang out. Um, but the school would – they were, like, cool with it. You know, like, they would put my uh, articles out on the bulletin board outside. Well, you were the, the youth uh, editor of the Baltimore Times. I mean, exactly. Of course they were cool What's not it. Long? <laughs> <laughs> that long like, uh, That sounds
0: like a pretty awesome way to spend your senior year of high school.
1: It was. It was super fun. And then I, then I applied to colleges. And I got into into the. I only applied to one actually, and I, I got into it. And I didn't last very long because it was like this little liberal arts college, Kenyon, on this like you know hilltop surrounded by corn in the middle of Ohio. And I was coming from like downtown Baltimore, you know. And yeah, I just didn't. You know, college seemed just as. How gross. long did you last? Day. Well, they threw me out after about three months. Really? Yeah, I was a, I was a problem, I suppose. you want Do you want to talk about that? <laughs> <laughs> no. no? <laughs>
0: Okay, so you, uh, you you go to Kenya and get kicked out in three months, which, like, I went to one of those schools. It's hard to get kicked out in three months. you got to work pretty hard. Um, and then you go back, and then what happens, man? How, how And then what, like uh, six months later, you're writing for Esquire? How does that happen?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, you know, so then I went out to, I, I, I got on a Greyhound bus and just kind of rambled around for a while. But wherever I would go, I would try to write. So, you know, like I got off the bus in Albuquerque and, turned up at the Albuquerque Tribune office and showed them some clips from the sun and, you know, did some writing for them and, and then I was writing for an outdoor sports magazine there called Zia Sports and, you know, doing some mountaineering and things like that and writing about it um, and I somehow ended up back in Baltimore at Baltimore Magazine and, and it was from there that I made the move to, to Esquire <laughs>
0: Hey, it's Max. I'm going to pause things for a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week. It's The Foghorn. Foghorn, in case you don't know, is a new short fiction magazine for the iPhone, iPad, and iPod Touch. They give you four stories a month, 12 issues a year, from exciting Hollywood writers and new voices. Uh, The Foghorn is really based around two ideas. One, modern readers don't need an endless stream of stories. They want a limited set. The Foghorn gives you four great reads every month. Two, great writing deserves to be paid. So, for $3.99 a month—that's just one dollar a story—you're going to get curated short stories to devour on the subway, in bed, or anywhere in between. Your subscription helps the Foghorn pay a thousand bucks for every published story. They're putting money in the pockets of awesome new writers. They also donate five percent of the net proceeds to A26LA. That's a nonprofit organization. You know them. They're dedicated to supporting students with their creative and expository writing skills. They help teachers inspire students to write. It's a fantastic cause. Foghorn supports it. So go download their free app. You're going to get a special Valentine's Day issue for free. There's a seven-day free trial. Check it out. Go read some stuff. Visit thefoghornmagazine.com slash longform. That's thefoghornmagazine.com slash longform. Go download the app. Go subscribe. Get some quality short fiction delivered right to your device. Okay, back to me and Will. What did editors make of you? I mean, you're like 19 kicked out of college, showed up in Albuquerque and saying, let
1: me write something for you. How, how did you convince people to go for that? I gave him a headlock and then give him a, <laughs> a noogie. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the clips weren't very impressive. I look back at them and it's, you know, cringe-inducing. Um, so were you, were a, you
0: cocky about them then?
1: I guess I was, I was I, yeah, probably, yeah. Um, I definitely was not shy about bringing them out and showing them which I would now rather die than show them <laughs> to anyone. Um, but, the, but, but, but the other thing is, you know, even back then, the newspaper industry was in a state of crisis. And so if somebody shows up and they appear to maybe have the capacity to deliver a, a fully formed article, and they don't really want any money or anything for it or not a lot, um, then then there's a home for that person. Right. That, that person may be the enemy of paid journalists everywhere, um, but you can build up a portfolio doing it.
0: Did you have, at that point when you're kind of traveling around and I guess when you went back to Baltimore, like, did you have a goal of where you wanted to get to? Did you know you wanted to be writing for those big magazines Yeah.
1: from yep. the start? Damn right, yeah. I can remember as a kid, man, like a little kid, reading Rolling Stone. I used to have them stacked up all over the place in my room, you know, the, the Hunter Thompson stuff and the PJ O'Rourke stuff and you know, eventually the Mike Sager stuff just swept me off my feet. Uh, that was later, but um, yeah, holy shit! Like all I ever really wanted to do, I've I have worshipped at the at what we now call long form, and you know, 50 years ago we called it new journalism, which is a particularly strange choice since that's what William Randolph Hearst called yellow journalism. <laughs> but, but you know, we've had a lot of names. I, I personally like long form. Um, over time but way before it was called that that's what I liked I didn't know you know I didn't know what it was but I knew it when I saw it, <laughs> I it that quote. Uh, and, and that's what I wanted to do man that's what I always wanted to do ever since I first saw it and so I tried to do that with with newspaper articles to the extent that I could um, well there was a
0: there was a time when newspaper articles tried to run that kind of stuff yeah I mean, it happens a lot less now I think but yeah you know, there, it, was, it, it was a slightly different voice, but that was a thing. Yeah. You know, that, was a, that was a course. You could be a you know Sunday features writer.
1: Yep. Uh, I think what I've now come to believe is that, uh, I'm going to get myself in trouble, but what else is new, <laughs> uh, is that when newspapers, including the place where I work now at The Times, when newspaper writers try to do long form, they botch it up a lot of the time. Um, and it's because it's not that they couldn't learn how to do it or don't already know how to do it. I think. I think it has to do with habits, right? I mean, the first rule of doing the kind of long-form writing that that I like to read is bury the fucking lead, you know? And that's the first thing they teach you not to do in newspapers. And so I am not at all prepared to write another newspaper article. I'm not in shape for it. I've been training for the wrong event. And I think that when, you know, the Times all of a sudden decides they want to beef out their long-form, you know, in the paper or online only or something... Um, and they bring to bear a bunch of newspaper writers it 's like you 've got the wrong team out you know, on the field you know um, and again i 'm probably getting myself in big trouble for saying that, but I think it 's a really important thing to to recognize that there 's a different art form, and that um, you can 't just you know throw down your French horn and pick up the classical guitar and start playing flamenco. you know you have to train for that shit and, and so I I, I think you know. Even back in the day when there was more of the uh, sort of feature kind of writing in newspapers, it tended to still be newspaper writing that just had a little more um, voice. Mm -hmm. But it still it wasn't structure. Structurally, to me, structure is what underlies this form that we love. You know, it's how the story is told. Um, It's also the aspect of the interior story that's that's generally, I think, executed better. Um, but that's because the structure allows for it. Um, so I'm getting boring now. No, no, uh, no. Well, I'm interested in how
0: that evolved for you. I mean, you know, so how old were you when you wrote the, started writing for Esquire? How did that?
1: I got hired at Esquire when I was 21.
0: Eat that, and uh, so <laughs> you got started Esquire when you're 21. And at that point, were you in shape? Like, were you? Did you know what you were doing, or were you handing like crazy messes into your editor and hoping it worked? Like, how did how did you? I'm
1: sure it was terrible. Um, actually, no, I guess I was 22. Uh, it, it was it was a uh, it was I was writing for a magazine. I was writing for Baltimore Magazine, yeah. um, and I was reading Esquire and GQ a lot. And so I had some sense of what I hoped to be doing. I was reading. Details was really good back then, too.
0: Um, you can get yourself in more trouble.
1: Yeah. I, I, I really, I still feel like you could go back. I bet that stuff holds up better than most people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think know. that's true.
1: I mean, back when there, it was more essayistic. And, um, but the, um, but so I was really, I was an avid consumer of that stuff. Um, and, uh, and so I had some sense of what I wanted to do. I just didn't have the tools to do it yet. And, and, uh. And, you know, Andy Ward at, at Esquire is one of the two or three greatest magazine editors of our time. I mean, another great podcast. Um, he just had faith, man. Like, he would just send me out to do these things that uh, there was there was no formal pitch process for it. And if there had been, it would have been disastrous because I didn't know what the story was yet. Um, and he would help me kind of find it. He's amazing at, at uh He's always, he's always ready to talk to you on the phone and, and help you figure out what the hell you just saw and why it matters. And uh, I learned so, so much from that guy. I mean, f- from him, he and Joel Lovell have been the two most significant forces in shaping my work by far.
0: What were the kind of stories when you were 22, 23, writing for Esquire, that appealed to you? What, 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 were, the, what were you looking for in a story?
1: I didn't... I, I didn't um, my stories were—they were. They were they, everyone was completely different. The first one I did for Esquire um, was about a, a town here in Pennsylvania called Centralia uh, that had caught on fire in, in, a, in a dump fire in 1962. This, this seam of coal underground um, that had been previously mined, but whose walls still contained coal, um, caught on fire, um, and then they couldn't put it out. And so, you know, a bunch of decades went by where it was smoldering underground and the smoke was billowing up through the streets and they had to evacuate the town. And this last sort of nucleus of maybe a dozen neighbors remained by the time I got to it. And and, and they were adamant. They weren't going anywhere. Their homes had been condemned and they just didn't give a damn and the state could go screw off. The state had you know, was their, their greatest enemy. But what had what had happened, w- what became interesting to me in the story, so I was interested because the fucking town was on fire, right? But when I got <laughs> out there, I figured out that what was actually much more interesting to me was this interior story about how these people had actually, through the lens that, that they experienced, they... They saw the town getting better and better. This, the town had the people who remained had come together as a community. There was they they had formed a little town council. Um, everybody had a voice. Everybody had a vote. They did everything together. It was, it was this little utopian thing because they had an enemy, right? right? They were all you know organized against the enemy, and uh, and they were super happy. They really were happy. I was there for months, and it was just like great. You know, sometimes they bickered, but they basically got along. And so the story became about home, and it became about how you know home sort of transcends. Um, conditions it's a sense inside rather than a physical you know set of coordinates and, um, and and the you know the the piece ended up sort of alternating between sections that, that sort of brought forward this uh, subtle narrative about how pe- how the pe- how the people felt the town had improved. You know, it's nice to have empty lots full of grass instead of more neighbors c- to compete with for parking and things. And then the other of course was how they'd ended up there scientifically. I'm right. interested in the science.
0: Yeah, I mean, all of your stories sort of have this, uh, or not all of them, but a lot of them have this uh, quite artfully like scientific bent w- woven into them. I'm interested in in what reporting that was like at 22 or 23. Like, did being that
1: young help you? Was there Were there advantages in that? I mean, generally speaking, it was a disadvantage to show up places um, because, I mean, I actually had one guy, this was when I was at Baltimore Magazine, this lawyer just walked into the room at his office where I had come to interview him and took a look at me and said something really rude and just left. I mean, he was just like, he was like, what no fucking you... way, I'm not talking to a kid. And he left, you know. And uh, so things like that happened in a more subtle form a lot where mm-hmm. I could see the... You know, I could see the shift in how seriously they expected, uh, or how serious they expected the 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 process to be. You know, when, yeah. when the guy who showed up was too young, they they just suddenly saw it as a as a as this laughable joke. Uh, but um, but I think that you know there were certain advantages that were more sort of pragmatic, logistical advantages. Like for years, uh, I lived in a one room apartment with a broken window. And the only furniture, well, there was a tent that I slept in. And then I had a cinder block and a cardboard box. And I unfolded this really primitive early laptop onto the cardboard box and sat on the cinder block. And that was my desk. And I just didn't give, I didn't care, man. Like You know, I didn't have a family or, you know. And so that was, you know, you can get by on a lot less dough when you don't have anything you want to buy.
0: Does that mean you got to uh, sort of take longer with stories?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yep. I didn't. I didn't go that long as a um, proper freelancer. Um, what happened was I did some stories for Esquire and some stories for Details and Rolling Stone. All in that. All in a big bunch. Mm. Um, and Rolling Stone made me a contract offer um, after I think my first story or second story for them. They made me a contract offer. And uh, for anybody who doesn't know, like contract writers are still freelancers, but. Um, you have like a, you have like a fixed number of words or stories that you produce every year, and then you have a amount of money that that's worth to the magazine. But then the, the total amount is broken up into usually monthly payments. So it's a much more steady gig, even though you're still technically a freelancer and you still work from home in your underpants. Um, and, and, uh, Unless it kind of felt like you hit the lottery. Yeah, it was great. Except I didn't want to work for Rolling Stone. Um, I mean, I liked, I liked the stuff I was doing for Rolling Stone, but I had found Andy Ward. Um, And I was – I had this, like, real heart-to-heart with the guy, and I was just like, I know that Granger hasn't brought on a new writer in forever, and I'm definitely not the guy who's earned his stripes around here, but it fucking breaks my heart to think I'm not going to be able to write for you because definitely if you take the contract with Rolling Stone, you're not going to be writing for Esquire. And so he was like, well, how much – is it? You know, how much are they offering you? And I told him and he went to Granger and they worked it out and they, they made me the same well not a penny more. <laughs> they were like if you really want to come here and not there, then you'll do it for the same money. And I did, man, and I was I never regretted it. And and I wrote still uh, for Rolling Stone again after that, but um but but my uh my my home was at Esquire for years. Reading back through that Esquire stuff,
0: uh, there's a lot there's a lot of voice. It they the stories read differently than the stuff that you've been doing lately, I would say. Pretty distinctly. Oh, yeah. Um,
1: I don't know. Talk about that. I mean, my, my tastes have changed. Yeah. So I'm, I'm less drawn to things that are, that are super voicey uh, like that, too. I think, for, I think for a lot of people, including me, um, there, there's a, when, you're, when you're sort of in your first five or ten years of discovering this long-form medium... Um, it's so exciting to see these things that are breaking all the barriers of voice and doing, just totally exploding the form, um, that, that it becomes almost an, it can become almost an end unto itself. And I was really excited about doing, you know like I wrote this piece about this guy who lived by himself in a trailer park out in Arizona, and there's probably not one correctly spelled word in the whole story. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, I, and I had such fun working on it and trying to write in that voice. Um, it's one of of a few pieces from that period that I'm not you know that that I I think I think it possibly holds up Um, it's uh, but I I would never do it now Um, because I've I've found I don't want to denigrate anybody who still still loves that stuff either just I've my tastes have changed I've found a a greater interest in a subtler um, presentation for the most part Um, and so I know that, that for me if I had read this stuff that I wrote then and the stuff I wrote now, if I had somehow was able to read that with someone else's name on it um, when I was 25, I would have definitely thought that the earlier stuff was done by a more gifted writer. Um, and I bet a lot of people would actually feel, feel the same way. Um, but, but and in some sense, it shows your chops. It, it's a lot, it's a lot, the degree of difficulty on a sentence-by-sentence sentence level is, is certainly higher when mm-hmm. you're writing in these really voicey pieces. Really, I think so, yeah, because... Um, it's much harder to find a tone that will work for all the different kinds of material if, if that tone is really eccentric.
0: How much of that is about story choice? Like that, the story in Arizona is about a guy that you met while driving cross country. Right. And, you know, it's a crazy thing he does. He lives in like the hottest place you can possibly imagine. Right. Um, it is not, it requires uh, a leap of faith. Right? That's not a story that would normally yeah. be in a magazine. There's right. a lot of like crazy people doing crazy things. Right, right. And I, I wonder how story choice informs that voice stuff, like whether your tastes have to change in the kind of stories you want to tell in addition to how you want to tell them. Because I don't think the like, super straight story about the guy in Arizona quite plays.
1: Yeah, maybe not. I mean, you would, you would have to be, yeah, you would have to tell the story in a different way. And l- let me be clear, too, I, I, I've, n- I've never bought into a lot of what ends up getting, uh, getting folded into the straighter story. Like, I hate the nut graph. Yeah. I despise the fucking nut graph. <laughs> and I think it's a joke. I think it's like a cop out. Um, you know, the this, this story probably should be about something larger in itself. But if you have to tell people what that is, you've failed from the beginning. <laughs> you know, like if they can't find it, then you didn't put it there and you shouldn't be beating them over the head with it. But anyway,
0: well, like, how do you think about, I think, uh, sometimes I've heard people defend the nut graph as like a way to convince people to keep reading or why right. they're reading or the value of what they're reading. Right. Do you not feel a pressure to sort None. of keep people going?
1: None. I mean, i so I feel, I feel a pressure. I want it to be interesting. Yeah. But I feel no pressure to tell them like, here are the seven reasons why you're reading. They should be reading because it's enjoyable, you know, and that's the only reason that they need. And if it's not enjoyable, then I'm not doing my job. Um, you know, I, I heard something that Michael Lewis said one time where he said, every time I really go wrong, it's because I, I'm not trying to entertain the reader. I think, you know, we shouldn't have a pejorative connotation with entertainment. I, mean, I we totally are, agree. It better be enjoyable to read it. There's so many other things to do. Even, you know... Even if you're the, the lucky writer who's got a captive audience, you know, in the toilet where the where the reader is like not can't go anywhere, right. there's still another magazine and there's another article, and yours, yours better be fun to read.
0: Yeah, I think that's really true. I mean, we, you know, we I've said that this before on the show, but we totally see that in the consumption of long form on the site and in the app. People use it at nights and on the weekends. That's when people read this stuff. It's the same time they go see a movie. It's the yeah. same idea i yep, think yeah uh, and you do have to kind of like uh, respect that need for entertainment i think
1: absolutely Yep.
0: um okay so esquire you're writing these these uh crazy voicey stories and then uh andy goes to gq and i assume you, you went with him yeah basically the same day so the, the crazy through line of this podcast just like the yeah. An- andy ward uh coaching tree <laughs> um but
1: at gq you started writing about politics. Very briefly. Yeah, well, I guess for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of stories in that article. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what happened, man. The, the Bush administration came in, and then 9-11 happened, and all of the evil in the world descended. And uh, I, I really opposed what they were doing. And so not all of my stories were, you know, these sort of hostile takedowns or something like that. In fact, I don't think too many of them were. There was a point where I wrote a big, long screed about how Dick Cheney should be impeached, <laughs> which I stand by. Uh, even now, we should find a way to have done it. Um, but, but, uh, but, but there were also cases where I felt like some important distinctions needed to be made between, you know, who were the people within the Bush administration who um, were more on the side of the angels and what was being done to them. Like, like, you know, Colin Powell, in spite of the February five, two thousand three speech of the United Nations, was basically trying to do right by the American public. I thought, and uh, and got screwed. And I actually thought that that. Paul Wolfowitz was uh, you know, made into people's uh, devil, but was this sort of misguided Wilsonian optimist. Um, and so I, wa- I wanted to write about those kinds of guys too, but it was always in the context of you know, here's this really, what I still think of as a dark hour in American history. We got involved in some wars that almost everybody now believes were a mistake and, uh, and, and, did, uh, and did some really crummy things to our civil liberties that we're still reckoning with. Um, and I just wanted to, to try to find a way in to write about that. That still that still preferenced character and story.
0: So that was your impetus to go start doing the politics stuff. That was an. I think, think it was.
1: I might be just making that up <laughs> retroactively. I don't know. I mean, I felt at the time like this was something I needed to write about.
0: You did a lot of profiles for a couple of years there in in DC. Was it um, was it difficult to make that transition? Did you like Did you get acclimated to Washington quickly? Never.
1: I never did. And I, And I would never go back I don't think I'd ever go back and do it again. You know, the problem with writing about Washington is that everybody is lying to you all the time. And so the way that you do an interview is totally different from most other stories. You know, if you don't have, if you haven't sort of gamed out, how you're going to react to all the lies and bullshit. And if you have to try to anticipate, what are they going to say when I ask this question? Oh, here's the lie they usually say. And then how are you going to respond? And you end up with this flow chart. Oh, it's, almost like, it's like preparing for a deposition or something. Right. It's totally different from it's actually lie. asking people a question. Right.
0: Lie management as opposed to reporting. Exactly,
1: yeah. And damage control, right, for your article. Yeah. Um, and then there's no setting either. I mean, of all the sterile, hideous places in, in the world, the inside of the Capitol is probably pretty high up there. Um, you know, nothing, there's nothing to describe, you know, there's nothing, there's just like all this white marble and big, you know, echoing hallways with people walking down them lying, and so, um, <laughs> in, in bad suits, and so, you know, there's really, there's, there's no story there except for the, except for the ideas, and, and I'm, I'm impressed by people who can do that well, I don't think I was one of them particularly, and um, it's not something I aspire to do, I'm always looking for setting and character, you know, in a story,
0: it seems remarkable to me that, that you've been able to, from such a young age, basically follow your interests and obsessions and uh, move from one topic to another. Uh, you've been at the Times for how long now?
1: Uh, what year is it now? Fourteen? Fourteen. Uh, three years.
0: Three years. I, I want to talk about a couple of the pieces that you've you've done there, but I guess um, it maybe would be uh, worthwhile for the students in the audience to hear a little bit about how you... Pick stories and how that's evolved, and, and um, how you know that there's a good story there, how you know to sort of trust your gut. I'm, I'm just interested in how that, uh, that generalist slash dilettante thing happens in practice.
1: I think, you know, one of the things that comes from, I guarantee that I am the least educated person in this room, and I'm totally good with that. And that's the, that's the way it always feels as a reporter, or should feel. I mean, I think if you're doing the job right, you should constantly be surrounded by people who know much more about the subject at hand than you ever will, right? Because there's just no point interviewing people who know less than you. And so, you know, for me, the, the experience of being a journalist um, has been uh, a way to get an education through other means, right? Like the extension of education by other means, as, as has been said about politics and war, um, but but but, so, when I you know when I got interested in those in this in these guys who were you know leading us in this very questionable direction in two thousand and three, four five, and I wanted to know more about them, I could go back and see what was their history. Well, a lot of them were in the in the you know Nixon and Ford administration, so I would like go ask Gerald Ford what he remembered about him or Henry Kissinger or somebody. It was just like this wonderful way to get a sense of how you know the late sixties and early seventies unfolded in America. Um, through pretty good sources or sources pretty close to the decision-making apparatus of the time, um, and, and yet at, e- at each step, I'd be asking, you know, questions um, that probably betrayed my ignorance time and time and again, and um, and, and I, I just don't care, you know. Like I, I'm, I'm so used to being the person who knows the least about the subject that I've become inured to it. Um, and and, th- and so that makes it easier then to move from subject to subject as well, mm-hmm. because the temptation of having a beat is, you know, oh well, I know everything about baseball now. So when I show up and interview somebody about this, uh, you know, a rod stuff or whatever, like I have all the same reference points. What Well I don't? I'm right. not going to write about that. I, I don't care about that. But
0: um, does but, that help you know when you've got the story?
1: Yeah, I think it does because you're you're just you're asking yourself like, you know, what's interesting about this. Um, from without, you know what, what's interesting about this. It, it's, it's just it's interesting just as a story, so that it's not about the sort of arcane minutia that people in in this you know very cloistered environment um, have overanalyzed to death. It's it's what's interesting about this. Um, what's interesting about being alive in the Pentagon during these wars, or what's what's interesting you know about being. Um, the guy who's responsible for spreading positive stories about nuclear power, you know, at, at Three Mile Island, you know, d- just without caring so much about, um, about trying to sound smart or trying to become enmeshed in this, you know, ecosystem in which everybody's, you know, really deeply, deeply versed in the material. Um, the risk, of course, is that you'll make an ass of yourself, and I probably do, um, sometimes I'm sure I write things that are incredibly naive sometimes um, But I find it enjoyable to do that <laughs> So fuck <mark> everybody else <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> how, does, uh, how does the James Turrell story fit in that?
1: A James Turrell story was uh, something I wanted to write James Turrell is an artist He's a, he, his, his material rather than paint or, or steel or whatever is, is light So he makes these rooms and he blasts light into them from different angles and I, um, I first discovered him here in Pittsburgh um, on a visit to the mattress factory a long, long time ago. Um, and uh, there's a piece there, there are a few pieces there. Uh, one's called Pleiades. There's one called Catso Red. Um, there's some great, they have some great, they're great supporters of, of Terrell in this little tiny... Uh, off the Beaten Path uh, Museum in Pittsburgh. And, uh, and, and my wife is an art historian and she's constantly dragging me around to museums that I don't want to go to. And then whenever there's a Terrell, even if it's not in that museum, if it's in that town, I'll typically go find it and spend the whole day just kind of gazing into the light. Um, and, uh, and so I'd wanted to do a story about Terrell for a long time and reached out to him when I was at, at GQ and, and got the cold shoulder. Um, and so then I was finished the book uh, which was this, a, a real you know obsessive undertaking um, sort of took me out of my body for a period of time you know it requires such focus uh, to do something like that and um, and and, and Terrell's big life work is this uh, this crater out in Arizona that he's tunneled into to create chambers that trap natural celestial light from the Sun and the moon but then also from different stars um, and when you go into these places in the middle of the night in this in this volcano that he's whose caldera he's carved into um you get these same kinds of effects that you'll find in museums the light blasts into the room and it glows and it feels all weird and creepy and you get this body high and um and so that seemed it it seemed like a good time having just finished the book to write the obsession story that i wanted to write and uh and i contacted him again and uh we're, we're like we're you know I wrote that story about him and I didn't hear from him for a couple of weeks and then he called me up and he was like Will it's James do you want to go sailing <laughs> and so we just like sailed together now we still never talked about the story really I, I don't know if he liked it or not but but oh, he we probably we liked got along. it man
0: if he took you on his boat
1: <laughs> <laughs> we sailed that was this summer man we sailed from his house way out on the eastern shore of Maryland. All the way up to uh, Marblehead, which is on the border of Massachusetts. Sure, it took us. Yeah, it took us five days, and he like fell and broke his tooth, and it was just like this wonderful, crazy thing that we did together. And I love the guy.
0: Um, There's a there's a thing that uh, in that moment when you were when you're at the crater that I wanted to ask you about. This might be a a somewhat weird question, but um, who's the guy from the
1: Guggenheim? Nat Trotman, was there Yeah,
0: you you mention in, in like sort of as the aside that Nat Trotman is really well spoken, mm-hmm. which is um, a way that you de- like I you describe a bunch of people actually in your stories. Do I really? Yeah, I had no idea. It's a weird thing. I'll never man. do it
1: again. I'm <laughs> probably not. Sorry, but <laughs> it's the early onset Alzheimer's. <laughs> it just
0: seems like a, it seems like something you're interested in. Pe- I mean, people who speak eloquently. Well, yeah, which you know now, now has me very self conscious. Yeah, well, you're are not one of them. <laughs> um.
1: <laughs> No, I mean you know you go around interviewing people for for 25 years or whatever it is now for me and, and uh it's just a rare and wonderful thing <laughs> and, yeah. and I guess I guess it I guess I feel the need to remark upon it when I see it. But, you know, it's it's a uh, there's so few people who can tell you what they think extemporaneously. Um I can't. Oh, You've done and a great job. It, for for me it's uh you know, I think I think I think it's it's a, the weird thing is is uh is what is when someone can uh, can can write well and speak well I think it's pretty rare I think Hitchens maybe is one, but they're, they're pretty few and I, and I think that 's not coincidence. I think it has to do with you know one of the reasons that you uh, work hard at and try to excel to whatever extent you can at writing is because you can 't uh, just speak off the cuff and say what you meant to say. Um, and so and I know that's the way it is for me, so I've tried to build up this other muscle that can compensate for the great weaknesses of being a bad speaker. Um, and, and, and then when I'm out there in the world and I encounter somebody who's got this other the other thing, the thing that I'm compensating for not having, um, it's striking to me. It's, an, it's a, it's a talent it, that that and, and the ability to sing are things that just it's like this magical ability some people have. Um, last night
0: before uh, we flew to Pittsburgh. I very stupidly read the uh, Air France 447 story. Uh, and we hit turbulence this morning on the flight. And uh, I'm not sure I led on, but I was a complete wreck. I was a, I was a total mess. And th- that story is so spooky, man. It really, uh, it really, it really uh, is pretty unnerving to read. And it, for anyone who doesn't know it's, a, it's about Air France Flight 447, which basically disappeared. And and um it obviously has all these connections to your book. Yeah. Um and there's a long section in the story. The story, sort of like the book, becomes about the people left behind. Yeah. And I I guess I wonder how those that story intersected with the book for you and and how um reporting it and talking to those people, uh, how that sort of connected to, to the people you were talking to for the book.
1: It, it, it connected in huge ways. I mean, not, and not just in that, and not just with regard to the people, uh, to the survivors, um, but also the technology of the search Right. was stuff, I mean, all the machinery they were using was familiar to me. Um, uh, so, so for example, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution was down in Brazil um, sending out these incredibly advanced subs um, to scour the floor, robotic subs to to scour the ocean floor in search of the wreckage of this plane that just dropped out of the sky in the middle of the you know South Atlantic Ocean, um, and and uh, you know I, I knew that side scan sonar technology that they were using. I knew that stuff because I had been out on boats running those subs or much smaller versions of those subs um, for for book research. And so it was a it was a it was a story that um, sort of brought home to me that the that the book I was writing. Um, was the, the, the kind of grief that I was exploring and the, the kind of uh, obsession um, of, of people who search for these things um, or, or, or the, the, the hunger to make right um, what's gone wrong um, by the search team for that Air France flight and for these uh, missing airplanes from World War II, um, that, 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 that those kinds of passions are broader than the story that I was ostensibly writing about um, in, in my book and that the book was in fact um, you know a, a drug delivery system to to get at those experiences um, and and to to try to explore those those twin feelings the one of loss the one of that specific form of grief and the other of that um, specific um, hunger for answers um, and the and 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 so when I was working on that story it it, it, it I was constantly thinking about the book and about how, you know, these experiences are part of um, what it is to be alive, but they're not, I mean, they're part of the sort of the, the range of emotions that, that can happen with some regularity in, in human experience, but they're not, they're not things that we talk about that much. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that you want to keep talking about them? Want to keep writing about them? I don't want to talk to them about them with you. <laughs> uh, <no. laughs> I, no, I don't, no. I don't, I don't know why uh, I continue to write about them. No, I don't. Um I, I I am aware that I must um I must still have something else I want to say, but I haven't figured out what it is yet. Um it's it's not that uh you know, for me it's not that um that I that I am not happy with the book or wasn't happy with the Air France story. Um I feel like they both do what I intended them to do. Um but this this uh I find myself continuing to think about this problem and, and this this sort of uh, this particular kind of tragedy and, and I find myself wanting to bring it to the fore as much as possible. These people feel abandoned, man. Yeah. I go around and do these readings and stuff and subject people to my uh, book and uh, you know, afterwards, constantly, people come up to me and they say, my great uncle went down, my family's never been the same, uh, we've been searching for answers. Can you help me figure out how to research at the National Archives? Can you put me in touch? Are there searchers in Papua New Guinea? Are there search teams in Burma? You know, are there search teams in Laos? And I and I can try to help them find. You know, so it's it's become a, it's become something that's you know really important to me. And I don't I don't feel consciously the need to keep writing about it, but um, I do still care about it, and it ends up manifesting itself in like, you know, I just keep writing, I just keep writing about it, whether I consciously want to or not.
0: Um, I think, you know, the details are different, but a lot of that sounds like what the people who are doing the searching would say as well. Mm -hmm. It's just something that they can't quite give up.
1: Yeah, they're storytellers for sure. You know, that's what they're doing is they're trying to tell us, they're trying to find the answer to the story.
0: Uh, Well, we'll we'll have you back on when you write the next one. Okay, great. (laughs) Thanks, Will. Okay, thank you guys for coming. Really appreciate it. Hey thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky, my co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner, our intern this week, Sarah Button. Thanks very much to our sponsors, Tiny Letter and the Foghorn. Go read some short stories on your device. The Foghorn Magazine.com slash Longform. Uh, thanks also to the University of Pittsburgh, specifically the writing department. Uh, They've been a longtime sponsor of Longform, and it's always a treat when we get to go see them. Even in January, it's nice to go see those fine folks. Uh, It is even nicer when someone like Will Hilton shows up. What a good dude. Doogie Hauser of Journalism. We'll be back next
1: week.